Well, good morning. It's a, it's a real pleasure to, to be here with you and worship with you and to look at the Word of God together with you. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 118. If you want to turn in your Bibles, it's also printed in your bulletins. And uh, I'm going to kind of spoil the punchline pretty early in this one. <clears throat> this psalm has, has got one main theme, and the theme is victory. There you go. Victory. Uh, winning. Uh, success. That's what this psalm is about. And that theme runs through the psalm from the beginning to the end. So it seems appropriate to begin by asking, what are the greatest victories that you have experienced? What is the time that you have succeeded, that you've won? I think that each of us knows something about what it's like to have a great victory. What would top your list? So for for some of us, our families are a great victory. Our kids, our grandkids... Relationships restored and, uh, and flourishing, maybe that, that weren't at one time or another. Uh, for others of us, maybe it's a moment of acceptance. We got admitted into college, we were hired for a new job, or you know the classic, she said yes, that acceptance can be a great victory. Or for those of us who are students, maybe you know the victory that comes from doing well on a major exam, one that you were really worried about. But then you got the grade back, you're waiting, you're waiting, and then you get the grade back, and you're like, oh, it's fantastic. It's a win. It's success. Uh, Some of us have known huge work victories. Project was successful. We received a major promotion. We closed a big sale. We even experience occasionally maybe even sort of uh, weird victories that maybe nobody else would... uh, would value quite like you do, you know? We all have maybe these things where if you told the story, maybe somebody else says, I don't get it. But you say, no, it was, it was a big victory for me. If, uh, if you think of it later, ask me about one of my weird victories, and I'll tell you a kind of a crazy story. So, Since the beginning of recorded human history, humans have had basically the same reaction to victory. The reaction is celebration and praise. Victory produces celebration and praise. I mean, just think, we act goofy, we go wild when our team wins, especially when they win the Fiesta Bowl. We throw parties, and we smile, and we laugh, and we sing, and we dance, and we spend more freely when we've experienced great victory. These are the the best moments that life has to offer. And we praise, don't we? We praise our family, our teachers, our bosses, our co-workers, our players and coaches, ourselves. Victories produce legends, or at least legendary moments that stand in our minds as long as we live. We praise the people who were victorious, and we tell people, sometimes for years, about just how great they were. No, you don't get it. They were really great. And when, when we're victorious, we have to tell other people about it. It's not optional. We need to tell people. We want to. We're compelled to. I mean, say, say you're at a restaurant celebrating a great victory. We, you, we have to tell the server, we're here to celebrate this, right? And it doesn't really matter whether the server gets it or not, whether they understand or whether they even care. We tell them anyway. And they get swept up in our victory, uh, a victory that isn't even theirs, right? Uh, we can't help it. That's just what we do when we've, when we've won, when we've experienced success. So Psalm 118 is about a great victory. And it records, in a sense, the celebration and the praise that follows that great victory. 
the writer just had to tell someone what had happened. And so they wrote this psalm. Okay, let's read Psalm 118. We'll read, we'll read it kind of in uh, sections, okay? Uh, so let's read verses 1 through 4. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. So Psalm 118 begins in verse 1, and then actually we'll get to it, but it ends in verse 29 with this repeated refrain. Give thanks to God, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And then in verses 2 through 4, as you read, it expands on that refrain. Let Israel, that is the people of God, let the the house of Aaron, that is the priests of God, who lead others in worship, let anyone who fears the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. So the hero, if we can put it that way, of Psalm 118, the one who has been victorious, is God. And that hero's identity is to be kept in mind. It's central to everything that follows. So in the following section, verses 5 to 18, notice that the story being told is one of personal deliverance. That's different than the psalms we've looked at the last couple Sundays. Our last couple psalms focused on the experience of the people of God as a whole. But this one is focused uh, basically on the words of one individual person who has experienced some kind of victory, success, winning. So, verses uh, 5 to 13. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as a helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surround me, surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut, me, cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. So the story that emerges in this psalm is one of an individual person who was in distress. And they had plenty to fear. There were enemies who hated him and they surrounded him. They were like bees in verse 12, swarming around a hive. They were like a fire among thorns. That's especially easy for us to picture because it's August and we live in the West. Fire season, right? So a single spark lands on a big, dry, withered bush. And that one spark quickly multiplies into a fire that engulfs the whole bush. And within seconds, the fire begins to spread across the dry grass. We've had, uh, we've had wildland firefighters as part of our community here at All Saints, and they would tell you in detail what you basically already instinctively know, and that is no one wants to find themselves surrounded by wildfire. No one wants to be surrounded by bees. And yet, the person who wrote this psalm falls into a situation, something like that. That's the best analogy they can come up with. There was fire, there were bees all around and I didn't know how to get out. I, I would guess that some of us in this room 
are awfully familiar with that feeling, actually. Verses 14 through 18. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So verses 14 through 16 are, we could call it, a song within a song. Because think of this entire psalm as a song, because that's exactly how the psalms functioned in ancient Israel. The psalms were the songbook of the people of Israel. But here within this psalm, the writer records another little song that we assume that he, he wrote. When he emerged out of the swarm of bees... When he was saved from the wildfire, the author sang of the Lord's salvation and strength. The right hand of the Lord, which is a reference to God's strength. The right hand of the Lord does valiant deeds. It exalts. It does valiantly, he sings. This is a hero's song. Sung to praise actions that go far beyond what you would expect to find in sort of normal, everyday experience. Verse 17, he says, I will not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Or if we could kind of phrase that another way, I have been given continued life so that I can continue to sing this song. As long as I have breath, I will sing the praises of the hero who saved me. Verse 18 is one of the most striking verses in the entire psalm. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. This describes the most difficult and challenging experiences of our lives. If God is in control, then why is he allowing this to happen to me? Where are you right here and now, oh God? Moments like that in life are exceedingly difficult to understand, and I won't, I won't try to fully explain them now. But notice that the entire testimony of Psalm 118 is this. My difficulties in this moment are indeed from God. It is the Lord who has disciplined me. Severely, he says. But notice, this discipline is intended to teach me a new song. One in which his goodness and his faithfulness and his provision are recorded and testified to into the future. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph, the ancient patriarch, described his experience this way. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. In the words of author C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the lion isn't safe, but he is good. It's a difficult truth. But even when the Lord disciplines his people severely, he does not give us over to death. And he does so to teach us a new song. A song like the one we see recorded here. Verses 19 to 24. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The language of opening the gates and passing through them, that's a description of a military victory parade. In ancient cultures, they would have easily, immediately picked up, uh, recognized the image that's being given there. In ancient cultures, when the army won a great victory, they would have had a victory parade, entering through the gates and marching through the city. And actually, it was not an uncommon experience to name the gate after the general who had the victory, the king who had the victory. And you notice you even see that in uh, verse 20. This is the gate of the Lord. The gate has been renamed after him. Uh, we do the same thing in modern times too, right? Uh, some, some people here, even in our church, remember hearing about Charles de Gaulle at the head of a parade when per- Paris was liberated. Uh, actually, uh, 73 years ago, almost to the day today, when uh, the victory parade entered through Paris. Maybe there are some in our church even who remember that. Uh, so there's mil- strong military themes. Uh, many commentators have noted from the nations attacking, the victory parade, uh, the emphasis on victory, salvation, and success all throughout. Many commentators have noted the sort of military themes of this psalm. Verse 24 is a pretty famous verse, and one that you might have heard before. This is the day that the Lord has made. And uh, some translations phrase the second line, we will rejoice and be glad in it. I've heard it said that we should understand verse 24 actually as a promise. As God saying to us, follow me through even this day, and you will rejoice and be glad in it. It might be hard to believe sometimes. We'll come back to that in a minute. But first, let's read the last section. Verses 25 to the end. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 25 functions as kind of a pivot here. Uh, there's, a, there's a major shift that takes place. Up to this point, Psalm 118 has been uh, a response to past events. But verse 25, notice, is a prayer for the future. Save us, O Lord. Give us success, we pray. Then in in verse 26 and 7, it returns to the procession that has come through the gates and is now arrived to the center of the town, which is the temple, the place of worship. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Celebrate him and offer him sacrifices because he has made his light to shine upon us. And then verse 28 is a commitment in response. It's a vow. Twice, the writer says, I will, I will. You are my God, the one who has demonstrated his his strength and goodness by delivering me in the past. Therefore, I will give thanks to you. I will extol you. What does extol mean? That's not a word we use too often. To extol is to publicly praise. It's not just that I will give thanks to you quietly on my own. 
instead, I will praise you so that other people will hear and they will know what you have done for me. I can't help it. I have to. Because a great victory has occurred. And what do we do when a great victory occurs? We tell other people about it. And then finally, verse 24 echoes the refrain of verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So that's a slow reading of Psalm 118. Kind of pausing and reflecting on each part. What are we meant to learn from it? Sometimes when I read my Bible, I ask myself, what does this mean at 4.30 p.m. on a Tuesday? We could call it the 4.30 p.m. on a Tuesday test. How should Psalm 118 change the way I live and love and choose? Well, I'd like to, I'd like to zero in on two themes in this psalm. Two themes. And the first one is the most obvious. It's all throughout the psalm. It's jumping off the page at you. And besides, I already spoiled the punchline anyway. So the first theme is victory. Victory, winning, succeeding, accomplishing something. Something great happening uh, that maybe was tenuous. Was it going to happen? Was it not? Uh, And then it did. Success, victory. What does Psalm 118 tell us about our victories? How should we think about our victories? How should we react to our victories? I'm going to briefly describe four things that we learn from Psalm 118 about our victories. Here's the first one. First one is that our victories are not ours alone. Maybe that seems obvious as we sit in church, but I suspect that it's less obvious at 4.30 p.m. on a Tuesday. When bad things happen to us, we can be awfully quick to acknowledge others, right? It's their fault. Why did you do that? But when there is a victory... We are slower to recognize others and much more likely to see the victory as our own. But Psalm 118 is serving as a reminder. Our victories are not ours alone. We need to grow in our tendency, our habit, uh, of acknowledging the significance of the, the people, the opportunities, the things that God has put in our life that have led to this victory. And we absolutely need to recognize our victories as a gift generously handed to us by God himself. So that's the first thing. Our victories are not ours alone. Or, in the words of Psalm 118, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Second, our victories are to be commemorated. In the Bible, uh, in, the, in really anywhere in the ancient world, Uh, the people of Israel did a variety of things to mark their victories. Sometimes they would erect huge monuments to an event. They would collect, I mean, they'd find the biggest stones they could possibly find and stack them all into this giant heap so that anybody who passed by for the rest of time, as long as that monument stood, would know something big happened here. Something important happened here. They held certain festivals to remember the victories of the past. The most prominent one being, of course, the Passover, right? It's uh, this reminder, this commemoration, annual commemoration of this, this victory that occurred in the past. And then they wrote songs, right? Like Psalm 118, for example. Songs to acknowledge what God had done and ensure that it would be remembered. All civilizations since ancient times have done the same basic things. 
to remember victories. Uh, we could just use uh, Boise as an example. If you go down to the Idaho State Capitol building, you'll see statues. We have statues of Lewis and Clark. We have statues, a uh, statue of Abraham Lincoln, uh, other prominent people. We even have a copy of the very famous statue of Nike, the, winged, the Greek winged goddess of victory. There's a victory statue in our, inside our Capitol building. We, hold, we write songs to commemorate things. We hold commemorations on days like uh, July 4th or June 6th to remember great victories of the past. What would it be like if we did something like that on an individual level? What would it be like? If you were to create a statue of something that happened in your life, what, what would it be? Okay, maybe not a statue. But like if you were to create something and hang it on your wall to, to serve as a reminder that this happened and I never want to forget it. I want to commemorate this. What, uh, if there was one day of the year when you would be most likely, what was the one day of the year that you'd be most likely to throw a feast every year to commemorate something that happened in the past? I mean, we do something like that with some of our holidays, with uh, our wedding anniversaries, even birthdays are sort of like that. But what about, aside from the usual, what about some, some special event in your life, something God has done? What would it be like to throw a feast uh, to remember for all time, every year, something that he's done? What song would you write? I mean, maybe no one would want to sing the songs that we could write. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe you're not that great of a tunesmith, so to speak. But uh, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it still be worth it for you to sing that song? Our victories are to be commemorated, Psalm 118 teaches us. Or in its own words, let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. So third, sounds similar, a little different. Our victories are to be celebrated. And perhaps this seems obvious at first, too. Most of the time, it's pretty easy to celebrate victories. And as we noted earlier, most of, most, of, most of us can't help but tell other people about our big wins. But here's a twist. Let's flip it around. Let's, let's go backwards with it. Can we celebrate a victory before the victory even comes? Should we do that? In the words of Psalm 23... Is it possible to celebrate a future feast even while we are still walking in the valley of the shadow of death? In certain moments, celebrating a victory that has not yet occurred is asking an awful lot. And yet that's what Psalm 118 and numerous other parts of the Bible, it's exactly what they are asking us to do. They tell us, remember the promises of God. Remember the things that God has done. And in this case, we read verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That seems very unlikely on certain days. I mean, on certain days, we, th- we, could think, we think to ourselves, there is no way that I will end up rejoicing and being glad in this day. But God's commitment to us, his vow to us, is just that. Keep following me even through this day. And you will rejoice and be glad in it. That's what what he's committing to, to do in you and in your life. It takes faith to follow him. To believe that he will keep his promise and bring good even out of this right here and right now. 
And we have sayings like, don't count your chickens before they hatch. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. Uh, and, and let me be very clear that I'm not suggesting anything like the gospel of health and wealth. As if, as if we can follow God and He will give us what we want. Like we can anticipate, if I do this, then God will repay me with that. To the contrary, let me be real clear. To the contrary, we will very often not get what we want if we follow God. Instead, we will get what He wants. But if we follow Him, entrusting each day to Him, then He will show us that what He wants is actually better than what we want. And His his promise, His vow is, it will be worth it. He will bring real good, even out of this day. So it's difficult to actually do this, to celebrate victories not yet received. It requires earnest faith in the promises of God. But Psalm 118 is telling us that if we follow him even through hard times, we too will say in the words of this writer, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. That's the third thing. Leads us right into the fourth. Psalm 118 tells us, the fourth thing Psalm 118 tells us about our victories. The first was our victories are not ours alone. Our second is that our victories are to be commemorated The third is that they're to be celebrated even before they happen, maybe. And the fourth thing is that our victories are to be remembered in the future. Don't forget. Don't forget what God has done. Several of the Psalms that we've looked at in the last month have shared that same thing. Don't forget what God has done for you. Commemorate. Remember. Celebrate. That's the first theme. It's the one that pops off the page. This theme of victory, of winning, of success. But right there with it, though much more subtle, is the second theme. Much more subtle than the first. But the second theme of this psalm is survival. Survival. All this talk of victory, but at 4.30 p.m. on most Tuesdays, We're not nearly as worried about victory as we are about just getting through the day. Right? Psalm 118 talks about survival as a type of victory all throughout. But look at verses 17 and 18 especially. Throughout the psalm, you don't get the sense that this was written by some mighty Bible character like Samson or Joshua or David who just defeated a whole city and an army fell and hundreds of people There's no line that says, and then God helped me to destroy all my enemies. It doesn't say anything like that. It seems like, if you you kind of read between the lines, that the victory here was was simply surviving to sing this song. That's the victory. Sometimes surviving is a great victory. Every mother of small children knows that truth. But since Psalm 118 uses military themes... I'll use uh, I'll use one I'll tell one story to be a military story to be an example of this. On June 26, 1943, pilot Robert S. Johnson flew his P-47 Thunderbolt fighter plane on a mission over France. His squadron was intercepted by German fighters, and one of them seriously damaged his plane, disabling his controls and setting his plane on fire. Johnson tried to bail out, but his canopy would only open about six inches. And so his plane went into an uncontrolled spin, and he thought that he was going to die in a crash, fiery crash. 
But after a few seconds, the plane miraculously on its own pulled out of the dive and the fire went out in his plane. And he was able to turn his P-47 back toward England and he flew for a couple minutes and it seemed like Johnson just might make it home if his plane held together long enough. But a couple minutes later, an enemy fighter closed in on his plane and it turns out that it was piloted by none other than Egon Meyer, who was a legendary German ace. Johnson's guns were not working, his, plane, his controls were impaired, his plane was barely flying, and he could not bail out. So he had no choice but to just keep flying and hope for the best. So Meyer attacked him again and again, hitting his aircraft with hundreds of machine gun bullets. But the P-47 flew on. After sweep after sweep of machine gun fire, Eventually, the German ace ran out of ammunition, and he pulled up alongside the riddled Thunderbolt, shook his head in amazement, waved at Johnson, and flew back to base. And Johnson somehow managed to get his plane back across the English Channel and landed in England, and when he landed and somebody pried his canopy off, he got out of the plane and started counting the bullet holes, and he gave up. He stopped counting at 200, and that was just standing on one side of the plane. You better bet that for the rest of his life, Johnson would tell anyone who would listen about the toughness, the sheer wonder of the P-47 Thunderbolt aircraft. Because when we have victories, that's what we do. We tell people about it. And we praise, we praise the thing that gave us the victory. That's an amazing story of survival. One of the coolest I've ever heard. But do you know what? There are stories of survival right here in this room that, in my opinion, are just as amazing. There are people here today, people that I see right here today, who, who, would, who, would, who would tell you, I might, I might not be here today if it weren't for fill in the blank. If it weren't for that doctor. If it weren't for that, my car's airbag. If, that, if it weren't for that one person who was in the right place at the right time, if it wasn't for someone who cared about me enough to listen and who was there for me when nobody else was, if I hadn't gotten out of that situation, if I hadn't gotten out of that relationship exactly when I did, then I might not be here today. There are people in this room who would say those things. Our instinctive reaction when something saves our life is to tell others, to praise what saved us, whether it's a P-47 Thunderbolt or a safe car, a fireman, a paramedic, or just someone who was in the right place at the right time. All of those things are worthy of praise. And from that day on, we will tell other people, I shouldn't be here. And yet here I am. And that's exactly what the writer of Psalm 118 is doing. For approximately 2,400 years now, people have been reading his testimony about how this writer survived. Here we read his powerful testimony. I shouldn't be here. And yet here I am. So maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're, maybe you're just surviving like this psalmist. That in itself can be a great victory if you follow him through it. It is the Lord's doing, the psalm says, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We have survived to sing this song. Today is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Sometimes that is 
as big a victory, something worthy of celebration as anything else in your life. So let's finish with this. If you want to see the wisdom and the power, the strength of God's victory, then you need to look at the cross. Look at the death of Jesus, the Son of, the Son of God, our Savior. His death in our place. Did you know that Psalms 113 through 118 were the psalms traditionally sung by the Jewish people at Passover? So that means that when the Gospels report that Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives, that means that Psalm 118 is most likely the last song Jesus sang before he went to his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, and his execution. And as he went out, knowing that all of these things were about to happen to him, the song most recently in his ears was this refrain, His steadfast love endures forever. He went out resting in that promise, knowing that his father's steadfast love would hang on to him through the cross, through his cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he would hang on to him through the grave and to the resurrection and the ascension and the glory that followed. He trusted in his father because he knew his steadfast love endures forever. And Jesus went out to embody that love so that we can always look at his suffering and his death in our place, which guarantees not just our survival, but our eternal victory. We know that Jesus' love can hang on to us through even today, through even our own forgetfulness and our own failure. We know that Jesus' steadfast love can hang on to through our own, even our own travel through the grave and to our own resurrection. We know that we can trust in Christ because His steadfast love endures forever. What a victory. And notice that this victory follows a completely different blueprint than our own victories do. We want victory through personal strength, through hard work, and through internal ingenuity. But Jesus' victory came through trust, obedience, and sacrifice. Jesus leads us down a different path to victory than any, than any that we've ever followed before. Our victories... Our victories in our life are largely temporary. They fade with time. But the victory of Christ is forever. And he calls us to follow after him in his blueprint for victory. As the father was faithful to the son, proving him worthy of that trust by raising him from the dead, so too has the son vowed to be faithful to us. His commitment to us, his steadfast love, endures forever. And so we can trust in Him. Amen.